Maloni, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suisuiki. Coming up, Tropical Cyclone Lola develops into Category 5 Superstorm. Also, I will take to Parliament that we cannot continue this divide, this division between the haves and the have-nots. After a disappointing campaign to be Auckland Mayor for Anana, Efeso Collins reflects on his election win. And later... Having Melanesian Festival is, like, really important. Melanesian youth in New Zealand celebrate their unique cultures. Destructive hurricane force winds with gusts of over 300 kilometres are forecast as Cyclone Lola moves towards northern Vanuatu. The Vanuatu Meteorological Service says the superstorm is due to make landfall over Pentecost Island at about midday local time Tuesday. Major damage is expected in northern Vanuatu, as Alicia Foon reports. The Vanuatu Meteorology and Geohazards Department has issued a new tropical cyclone warning for Torba, Sanma, Penama and Malampa provinces. Heavy rainfall with flash flooding is expected over low-lying areas close to riverbanks, including coastal flooding. Meanwhile, Red Cross Vanuatu is concerned it does not have enough relief to support people through the Category 5 Superstorm Cyclone Lola as it moves through northern Vanuatu. Shirley Johnson from Vanuatu Red Cross in Santo says there is only one storage facility with 100 household relief kits in the Torba province, which has a population of over 9,000 people. Category 5, we are expecting to have major, major damages. So I'm being afraid that we might not have enough relief in time to, you know, to save the people. She says evacuation centres are set up in the northern provinces and communities are well prepared, with many people evacuating early in anticipation. Red Cross Vanuatu is counting on the help of New Zealand and other Pacific nations and territories ahead of superstorm Cyclone Lola making landfall. Shirley Johnson says although she is afraid, she believes Vanuatu will get the help it needs depending on the cyclone's impact. Anything that uh, will happen, I believe that uh, the government and the people of uh, New Zealand and other Pacific Islands will um, will come in to assist uh, us in Vanuatu if we have any any major damages. Vanuatu Met Services Acting Director Fred Jockley says schools and churches are ready to receive residents who may be forced to evacuate when the storm makes landfall. For the latest on Cyclone Lola, head to rndi.com. An Australian academic says immigration is an area where Canberra could get one up on China in the strategic competition for influence in the Pacific. Last week, the Labour government passed the legislation for its new Pacific Engagement Visa category. After months of uncertainty, the legislation required to implement the Pacific Engagement Visa passed through the Australian Senate, with the Greens and other crossbenchers providing the numbers the government needed in the face of opposition from the coalition. Modelled after New Zealand's summer quota and Pacific access visas, it will be a first-of-its-kind pathway to residency in Australia for Pacific Islanders. Kuroi Hawkins spoke with the Director of the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University, Professor Stephen Howes, about the new pathway. Uh, yeah, this is a new visa. It's a completely new visa for Australia. And it's the first time that there'll be a, a Pacific window into Australia's permanent migration program. 
So it's actually modeled on similar New Zealand visas. Uh, New, in New Zealand, you have the uh, Samoa quota and the Pacific access category. And uh, this will this will have a, a similar design. Um, it'll have a, a, a wider scope. Uh, so it'll be open to pretty much all the countries of the Pacific um, or, or of the Pacific Islands Forum. Yeah. Uh, at least those that don't already uh, have a New Zealand passport. So I think Cook Islands, New Way are not included. Uh, I don't think the French, you know, territories will be included, but uh, most of the Pacific, it'll be open most of the Pacific Island Forum countries. And there'll be just like with the New Zealand uh, visas, there'll be a quota for each country. And the residents of that country will be able to enter a lottery or a ballot. And if their name is pulled out, they'll have a certain period, say six to nine months, uh, to find a job in Australia. You know, they'll also have to pay some, pass some basic, uh, you know, health test, character test, English test. They pass all those tests, get a job, uh, they're able to move to Australia, and they can, you know, they can stay for as long as they want. They'll become permanent residents. What what's driven this? Has there has there been a call for it? Has there been demand? Yeah, I think there are several ways to look at it. Um, you know, one way is to see it as a sort of natural evolution. Uh, in in two thousand and seven, we started the seasonal worker program, again like the New Zealand RSE, and uh, that was expanded around twenty eighteen into the uh, Pacific Labor Scheme. So for the seasonal worker program, you know, workers come for say up to nine months to do seasonal work on a farm. Uh, then they go home. Uh, on, on For the PLS, they can come for up to four years, uh, you know, perhaps to work on a farm, but most of them actually work in, in abattoirs. And this is really the next step. So those are both temporary, uh, temporary schemes for the Pacific, you know, first seasonal, then multi-year. And I think this is the next step, which is uh, give, giving opportunities not for temporary, but for permanent migration. So, yeah, I think it's a natural evolution. Um, I think what's driving it are several things. I think, you know, there's a, a growing realization that, you know, migration is really important for the Pacific. Um, and perhaps that aid is not the answer, you know, so we need to look at alternative uh, instruments. I think there have been calls uh, from the Pacific. Well, they, we, we know there have been. I mean, there were calls, you know, to introduce the seasonal worker program. More recently, there have been calls for visa-free access, more easier travel uh, so this is definitely a step uh, in that direction. Um, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't uh, rule out uh, or it would be a mistake to ignore the influence of China. You know, we all know there's a lot more strategic competition. And I think Australia is keen to uh, bolster its ties to the Pacific. And migration is something Australia can offer that China can't really. You know, Pacific Islanders aren't really going to migrate to China, but they definitely will migrate to Australia uh, if they have the opportunity. Um, and then I think the final factor is, uh, well, no, there's actually two more factors. I think one is climate change. You know, there's growing concern about climate change, and this is a this is not the solution to climate change, but it does present another option for people whose countries are threatened by climate change. And then, uh, you know, there's, there's a sort of, there's a sense that there's underrepresentation of the Pacific uh, in Australia. You know, the number of the, the share of the Pacific diaspora uh, in Australia is just a couple of percentage points. It's well below New Zealand. It's not really consistent with that sense of us being part of the Pacific family. And in particular, it's also very unbalanced uh, between different communities. So, you know, we have uh, a lot more Samoans, for example, 
or even Cook Islanders than we do Papua New Guineans. So those specific countries or citizens that have been able to come into Australia via New Zealand, you know, they've, they've come to Australia quite large numbers. But the countries that don't have that access that New Zealand's provided uh, have, have really been shut out of Australia. And so this uh, visa is especially going to be targeted to countries that are larger and that are underrepresented in Australia. So, yeah, it's a long answer, but I think there are a lot of things that have come together uh, to produce uh, this uh, Pacific Engagement visa. First-time MP for Anana Efeso Collins of the Green Party in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is elated and humbled to make it into Parliament. For Anana says he has a fire in his belly, ready to hold national and act to account from the opposition benches. While he hasn't been sworn in, he told Lydia Lewis his family could not be prouder after a devastating loss in the Auckland mayoral race. Oh, a deeply satisfying, gratifying win for our family. I guess when people people will know that we stood for the Auckland mayoralty about this time last year and were very disappointed and gutted by the result that we received. And over the last year, we've been out of politics, out of public life. I've had a really good chance to reset a review what um, our continued values are and how we want to continue to serve the community, do a little bit of contract work and spend heaps of time with the family. So the win and being elected on the Green Party list is a huge uh, win for our community. And many people will know that I've served in Auckland for many years. And I think it's important that we continue to have a strong, bold, a speaker voice going into Parliament. So we're just, we're elated, we're humbled, and we're just so honoured by the opportunity. Have you spoken with anyone um, in Samoa or Tokelau? Yeah, at this stage, only my family in Samoa at the moment. Uh, so Fanana is the uh, Matai chiefly title from Mum's village, Satsufi and Satsubaitia. And uh, our family back home were very quick to, to ring or to, to ring on Messenger because everyone's on Facebook in Samoa and just offer their congratulations, share their deep sense of pride for us. The name Efeso, I'm named after my mum's father, who was a Methodist church minister. And so you'll understand just how deeply full of pride many in the family are back home in the village. So, yeah, I've had lots of phone calls from our family back home. And tell me more about what that representation means for people. It means a huge amount. I've often said with young people that if you can't see it, you can't be it. And it doesn't matter whether it's in politics or in the sporting arena or owning a business. When our young people see someone who can model the behaviour and the attributes of what ongoing hope and aspiration is, then it's it's, uh, significant for them. And I think it's significant for our families back home because my parents, like many other parents, came from Samoa and Tokelau back in the 1960s. They arrived in New Zealand. Their dream was that their kids would go on. To, to enjoy this land of milk and honey. And, you know, my dad passed away about 15 years ago and it was always his dream that, you know, we'd own a house, that we'd go on to university. And those dreams are coming true. And now this is an extension of the dream where our advocacy goes now to the highest, I guess, uh, decision-making table in the land, which is Parliament Buildings in Wellington. Even my experience there last week, we went down there last week just to do an induction with Parliament. And I took a couple of selfies inside the debating chamber, sent it to my mum, uh, the photo, and you know, my cousin called me and said my mum couldn't stop crying at how deeply moved she was that her son 
was able to get to that place to speak for her. My mum was a cleaner at Middlemore Hospital for over 40 years, and now her son will be speaking up for this community in this chamber. And so you all understand just how significant that is for our people. And why the Greens? You aligned yourself with Labour when running for mayor. Why the Greens? I I was serious about hope and ambition for our people. When we came, uh, you know, when we were first involved in politics, the first memory I have of an election was mum and dad going into support in 1984, support David Longy when he was going for prime minister and, and won that year. But I think Pacific people have always been connected to the Labour Party and for some time I served on Auckland Council as a Labour Party member. But when I read the values of the Green Party, their uh, policy platforms, in my view, it had greater ambition. It wanted to bring hope. You know, we want to see an end to poverty. We want to see everyone fully and adequately housed. And I wanted to work at speed. I didn't just want to tinker on the edges, which is what I believe we were doing previously. Are you disappointed that that platform now will be on the opposition benches? Yeah, I I take, there's a part of me that takes real, uh, that contextualises it within what what I would Waititi said when he said, you know, they've been in opposition, Māori Party have been in opposition for nearly 200 years. Yeah, whilst I am disappointed that we won't have the Treasury benches, what I think is always going to be foremost in our minds is our commitment to advocacy. And I think it's important to know, too, that a whole lot of advocacy and change came about when we had right-wing governments. When you look at people who stood up against the student marches, the nuclear-free New Zealand, a lot of that happened when we had right-wing governments. And whilst it would be better if we continued uh, a more progressive government, and I'm saddened by the fact that we will be in opposition, I'm not going to step back because we are. In fact, this should make us even fill us with greater fervour to ensure that the voices of the vulnerable and the oppressed are heard and I'm I'm extremely anxious about uh, the possibility that there will be no Basika person in this government because the one person they have, uh, Angie Nichol- Nicholas, may or may not come back after specials and so we could have a government that has no Basika person in it at all and that causes me huge concern and so we're leaning now on those on the opposition benches to really stand up for Basika communities. Is there fire in your belly? Oh, you bet there is. And there has been for a long time. You know, I live in South Auckland. I've lived, I grew up in Ōtara. And I have seen the impact of neoliberalism impact on my community for way too long. And it's time to push back soon. So, yeah, I'm, I'm filled with an energy. I've been out of public life as well for a year now. I've had a chance to, to hang out with my daughters. I've got two young daughters. I dropped them to school. I picked them up. What did you learn from with, that? What did you, what, yeah. how did that re-energise you? It, it reminded me of what was most important, that I'm going to, we as the adults in the room have to do everything possible to leave behind a planet that is going to survive and sustain the hopes and dreams of my daughters and their friends at school. You know, when you hear the kinds of things they're talking about in the playground, the things that they're thinking about for the future. You know, my daughter comes home all the time. She says, Dad, we've got to walk more. We can't use the car. It's good that we're catching the bus. These are serious issues for my 11-year-old and you know, my 3-year-old just enjoys what we're doing. But when they're talking about these things, how we're going to manage water, how we keep water fresh, how we don't waste water, these are the kinds of things that are important to my kids. And I know that their school friends 
find those things just important. And we as the adults need to say, look, we've got to prepare the way so that when our children come to our age, we haven't burned and warmed the planet so much that it's not going to survive and sustain them. So those are the things that have really re-grounded me so that I come to Parliament with a, I guess with a, a greater sense of purpose and passion to stand up for our community. Melanesian youth in New Zealand are leading the way in the preservation of their cultures. The Melanesian Festival Aotearoa was held in West Auckland on Saturday, with young ones dominating the stage with traditional performances. Tiana Haxton attended the four-day celebration and spoke with several members of the community to learn what it means to be Melanesian in Aotearoa. The future is bright for Melanesian culture in Aotearoa as thousands attended the festival, showcasing the unique heritage of the sub-region that includes Fiji, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, New Caledonia and Papua New Guinea. This is the second consecutive year the event has been held, which is a dream come true for founder Joanna Monolangi. She shared how the festival helps New Zealand-born Melanesians connect with their homelands. A lot of them don't, don't, you know, have never been to their own uh, respective nation, uh, island. Um, this is just one small part where they can come and feel uh, that this is, this is me, this is who I am as a Melanesian, and, and celebrate with their families. I'm just enjoying the day. I'm so full of... Um, excitement and just seeing everybody, the different colours of Melanesia, whether it's the handicraft or the food, um, the outfits that everyone is wearing, it's just awesome. Festival goers were impressed by the number of young ones performing on stage who had spent months perfecting their songs and dances. A number of youth groups travelled from as far as Wellington to be a part of the show. The initiative and leadership demonstrated by the youth touched the hearts of many, including event coordinator Albert Trail. It's just amazing to see how hard they've worked just to prepare to come into the festival today. It's just really humbling to see that, really grateful to see them as well. Honestly, it's so beautiful. Um, some of the uh, kids are part of three different groups. Um, that's how much they really want to get into the culture and learn about their identity. Yeah, so. Again, that's one of the reasons why we do it, is for the young people. Chael says prior to establishing the Melanesian Festival, their youth are often lumped with Polynesian-centric events and rarely have a platform of their own. The youth themselves say through the event they feel seen as they have the opportunity to express their pride for their own cultural identities. Renee Sanga shared the stage with her two friends, showcasing the traditional and contemporary dance of Solomon Islands. We were just really happy that we were able to um, share our Solomon Islands and we're just really happy to be here today. I think it's really important that um, especially Melanesian countries getting recognition because most of, mostly you see like Polyfest and Pacifica, but Having Melanesian Festival is, like, really important. As the girls performed, Sunameke Dance Group had a final run-through backstage. Member Katrina Sonta agreed with Sanga's sentiments, saying Melanesia needs more recognition. It is awesome to have Melanesian-specific festival because it's 
it's actually underrepresented both in New Zealand and Australia, but it's some of our biggest neighbours. And, you know, Polynesians, they have a, a lot of fame, and Melanesians, we like to get our foot in the door a little bit, so it's nice. As a result of the community's efforts to put Melanesia on the map, the festival has been hailed as its most successful one yet. The organising committee have secured support to keep the event running annually and are already planning next year's event. Looking towards the future, the festival organisers are hoping to increase performers from Melanesia to further boost their festival and bring a slice of their home to Aotearoa. That's Pacific Ways for today. To listen back, head over to rndi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, Tohani.